Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm your host, Natalie Pearson. The International Labour Organisation estimates that in Southeast Asia, there are 30 million children engaged in paid work, 17 million unpaid work, and 50 million who don't attend school. These figures can be a shock to people living in countries like Australia, where childhood is typically a non-productive stage of life, more readily associated with schooling and dependence on adults. What is the meaning of childhood in contexts of adversity, where if you don't work as a child, you and your family won't survive? What does it mean where to attend school is to place your family in a precarious financial situation? To discuss these questions, I'm joined on the SEAC Stories podcast by Dr. Maria Amigo, Senior Lecturer at the University of Sydney. Maria is a social anthropologist and has studied children and childhood in contexts of adversity for over 20 years. Her PhD was on child labour in Indonesia, and she has also worked on issues relating to child migration, child malnutrition, child marriage, and the effects of climate change on child labour. She's interested in conducting research that can directly inform positive social change. Maria is also interested in the Sustainable Development Goals and in Education for Sustainability. She's currently working on a project to embed these ideas into the curriculum. Maria currently lectures in the Education, Enterprise and Engagement Program at the University of Sydney, where she guides interdisciplinary groups of students to look into complex problems introduced by partner organisations. Maria, welcome to CX Stories. Thank you, Natalie. It's great to be here. How did you come to be interested in children and childhood as a focus of your research? I guess I've always been interested in children. I think maybe thinking of my own childhood as a girl, I was thinking of becoming a teacher and I've always felt very comfortable around children and I've always been very curious about children. So yeah, I guess that's how I became interested in children and childhood. And and I've always been sensitive towards issues around children and childhood. I remember I come from South America, so a country in, in the developing world. And I remember going with my parents on holidays and looking on the side of the road and seeing children that were asking for money or they were asking for food and they wanted to engage with me. So that's always been interesting to me and asking myself how childhood can be such a different experience depending on where you you were born and and who your family is. Did you have a job as a child? No, unfortunately, (laughs) I didn't. But I went to a school that was private school and I had to go to school every day from 7.30 a.m. and I would come home at 4.30 p.m. So that makes you wonder, you know, what is child's work or what is child labour? Absolutely. So these ILO figures that I started with are pretty startling for someone who's not familiar with issues relating to children and childhood. We're here to talk about Southeast Asia, of course, but can you help us contextualise these figures globally? Is Southeast Asia an anomaly in terms of the number of children in paid and unpaid employment? Or are these trends consistent across the world in context of adversity, to use your words? Yeah, they're certainly consistent across the world. A term I really like to use is the majority world and the minority world. So I would say that most children live in that majority world where the idea of being a child is very, very different to what we would take as being a child. So I would say those figures, for Southeast Asia, I think they represent about 30% of the worldwide population of working children. 
So there's many working children as well in, of course, Africa and Latin America. When we're talking about working, what sort of jobs are we talking about? Yeah, so that's a great question. So when you think about the concept in itself, you can think of work in terms of paid work, in terms of unpaid work, work that happens within the household, work that happens outside the household, work that you do seasonally, work that you do throughout the year. So there's been various definitions of what entails children's work. So the International Labour Organization now has a definition, which is anyone who is engaged in an activity that contributes to production, and you have to be under 18 years of age, And that entails, uh, for the International Labour Organization, the definition of child labour is, as I said, in paid work before the age of 18, but also they refer to work as being hazardous work, so tough work, or work that is very challenging within the household. So that entails many hours of contributing to household chores within the household. Or, of course, work that entails being in risky situations, for example, participating in war. So that's a definition that the International Labour Organization has. But I take children's work in a very broad range, really. So it could also entail contributing to everyday household chores, even working at school. So there's some interesting research, for example, coming from um, a researcher that did her studies in Japan that makes the point, why do we not accept children working in agriculture, but we do accept children who spend 10 hours working at school and who suffer the same stress and illnesses that a working child would experience working in the rice fields, for example. Well, why is that? I mean, kids are expected in Australia, at least, to do put in long hours and lots of extracurricular activities. Is this coming from a particular cultural perspective where certain forms of work, if they're beneficial from the perspective of education, viewed positively, and then other types of work such as care work in the home are viewed negatively? Yeah, it's quite a complex topic. And it has a lot to do with historical developments of particular societies. So even the concept of school, formal schooling, is very recent. So 200 years ago, only the wealthy people would send their kids to school and non-wealthy people would just expect their children to be socialized within the household and then contribute to the well-being of the household or to the maintenance of the household. So it really depends on the context And I would say that the development of the schooling system has gone hand in hand with the notion that children should not be producing for the household. So the more wealthy the society, the more you expect that children are non-productive members of the household. And the less wealthy the society or the country, the more that you expect the children to be part of the reproduction of the everyday maintenance of that household. So your research for your PhD was on children in Indonesia and you described their lives as complex because they often have these multiple roles. What sort of roles were these children participating in, Mm -hmm. both in terms of education and at home and in paid employment? Were their children participating in all those domains? They were. So, And that question leads me to think of children not as a separate stage in life in certain societies, but as part of 
being an individual in a community. So if you think about the roles you fulfill yourself these days, you have a household, you have caring responsibilities, you have to bring money to the household, you have to maintain that household, you have to clean and you have to educate your child. So children in certain parts of the world fulfill those same responsibilities. So they're not different in some senses, they're not different to being an adult. So, for example, when your mother has to go to work, my particular research was in a rural setting in Lombok in Indonesia. So during the tobacco season, parents have a lot of work to do to bring money to the household. So children take some of those other responsibilities, cleaning, cooking, minding the little children in the household, going to the markets, buying food, all those things. So I guess... There's different perspectives you could take on this, like you're describing a situation where children are more is expected of them and perhaps we might conceptualise them as more empowered, but that also exposes them to being exploited as well. Can you talk to us about that? Certainly. So, of course, children, they are young. They still don't have the decision-making power that adults have. And of course, there are hierarchies in the family. So the father tells you what to do or the mother assigns certain roles to you. So, of course, there is that potential of exploitation. So that's something that needs to be looked at. But on the other side, children develop their own methods of contesting that. So that's what I really loved to see in my research, that agency that they develop and how they can become really independent and how they can oppose certain decisions that are made for them. So it, it really depends on the situation and the context. But the more the children understand their responsibility to maintain the household and the more that they are acknowledged as valuable members of the household, the more empowered they will be. I'm really intrigued by this idea of children developing their own forms of resistance. What are some great examples that you saw? So some great examples that I saw perhaps were instead of working for your family, so instead of helping your dad in the harvest of the tobacco plantations, you would actually help a neighbour who would give you a bit more money than your father because... Um, smart. Yeah, very smart. <laughs> so children are very, very creative. And one of the fabulous findings in my research was how money savvy they are. And for example, they a group of children I, I was working with, they would organize their own saving strategies, rotating, putting money. So they would be, for example, a group of eight kids and they put money into a little box they once a month, each child would take that money to buy a bicycle, for example, but they were committed to the subsequent month contributing to that little saving strategy. So things like that, very, very clever. But I want to say also that children are very conscious of how tough it is to make a living in that context. So they don't see work as our children would see work when you ask them to do the dishes. Oh, mom, no, I don't want to help. Or, you know, you have to tell them a thousand times, please make your bed or please help me clean the house. These children are really conscious. They see their parents struggling. They see their parents having a hard time to make ends meet. So they're very aware of that. And I have great narratives in my research where children say, I remember a child, for example, who was saying, do you know how much I eat? I asked my mom, you know, he was, of course, a, a boy who would have been 13, 14, really hungry, you know, growing. 
I have three serves of rice each time. So of course I need to contribute to that. So that awareness that we do not see here is quite striking when you talk to those kids. How interesting. Can I ask you about the ethnographic approach? Because you make the case that ethnographic research can help us delve into the lives of working children and therefore better understand the lives of poor children in Southeast Asia. And you've just shared some anecdotes from your research. Why is ethnography such a useful tool when it comes to studying and understanding children? Yeah, ethnography is a fabulous tool. And being an anthropologist, of course, I defend it (laughs) all the time. So it's in general, ethnography is a fabulous tool to understanding any community you want to study. But studying children is very, very difficult. First of all, because of that hierarchical relationship between an adult and a child and how shy they would be to answer a question or how reluctant they would be to participate in an interview or in a focus group. So with ethnography, you become friends of the children. That's something I love. So wherever I go in the world, I'm very attracted to children. So because ethnography entails being there in that place that you want to study for a long period of time and participating in those activities and being part of a community, children become your friends. And because I was a foreigner in Indonesia and I look very different to what they look. And besides that, I was coming from South America. So I was really an exotic person in a very traditional, remote part of Indonesia. So I was really like a celebrity. And that (laughs) that was fabulous for my research project because children would follow me all the time. They were asking me questions. I was surrounded by children all the time and that made me really close to them. I would say they were my friends. So they could, once, you know, the first stage of suspicion passed, so they were over, oh, who is this strange in our village? They were so interested in me. So they would follow me everywhere. And that made it very easy for me to understand what they were thinking, what they were doing all the time, when they were going to school. So it was a fabulous tool. So ethnography basically helps you become part of the place. How did you navigate the imbalance in power relationships as a foreigner and a white foreigner coming to Indonesia and also working across age groups? I imagine there are complex considerations around consent and getting ethics approval from your university to even conduct the research. And also, how did you negotiate within these hierarchical relationships? So, Perhaps the parents want to be present for the interviews. How did you navigate that when perhaps the children are feeling shy to talk to you by themselves or shy to talk to you honestly when their parents are around? How did all that unfold? That idea of consent for talking to adults, it's very Western. So parents were more than happy for me to talk to the children It goes back to that comment I made before that our idea of childhood is very, very different to the idea of childhood that they would have in this setting where I did my ethnography. So parents were very happy for children to be around me. So that's partly responding to your question. In terms of the hierarchical relationship, yeah, that that took a while. It took a while for them to accept me in their community. It took a while for them to negotiate that difference that we had in relation to me coming from the Western world and looking very different, being a a white person in Indonesia. So it took a while, but I guess it, it all comes back to how you connect to people and how you 
embrace that opportunity. So as I said, when we started this interview, I love being around children. I feel very comfortable around children. And on the other side, they saw me as an opportunity to be entertained, something different that was happening in their villages. And yeah, of course, I had to negotiate that situation, not just with the children, but with the whole community for them to accept me there. But once I was accepted, it just flew very well. It was easy to work around children. And Did you face, speculating here, but I imagine you possibly encountered situations that were particularly sensitive or confronting. How did you deal with that as a human being and as a researcher? Yes, there were a few confronting situations. I think it comes back to personality and loving what you do. So one recent thing I learned yesterday was that the word passion comes from pain. Actually, the etymology in the Rome in Latin comes from pain. So which was really interesting to me when I heard this. It was what really affects you and touches your emotions, also develops your passion for something. So as I said, when we started the interview, I've been always been interested in children and in socioeconomic disadvantage around children. And that is how my passion developed. So that is also how my resilience developed around this topic. I want to talk about disconnect between dominant universal discourses on children's well-being and children's rights and the realities in which many children live. And you sort of referred to this earlier when we we're talking about hierarchies and this perspective that comes from the West that we need to seek consent from parents and adults to interview children. Can you share with us more about these modern ideas of children and childhood and how they conflict with the work that you've done? Yes. So it goes back a bit to what I was saying before, that the concept of childhood or how we conceive children and what we think they should be doing is very modern. So, And this is a concept that evolved with industrialization of societies and with the development of the schooling system. So if you think about what children were doing 300 years ago, it was very different. Even my my mom told me once that my great-great-grandmother got married at 13. And yeah, it's shocking to us, but it was quite common in that area of the world at that time. So it all comes back to this notion being very historically and culturally connected to a particular moment and, and place. So when you see these broad discourses about the children's rights and universal education and, you know, children should not do this or that before they are 18, it's a very recent idea. And all these discourses have been developed by particular sectors of society and and sectors that have power and that have a particular notion of what children do or have to Next question, which is about international conventions and universal declarations and also country-specific policies around children's wellbeing and rights. Who are these pronouncements actually for? They are for this idea of childhood, which is for the minority world, not for the majority world. So a great concept I like to share is an author called Sharon Stephens. She introduced this concept of the luxury of childhood. And she says that the luxury of childhood is only for a very small portion of the world's children. So these conventions, policies are for those children. They're not connected to the realities of children in the majority world. My next question was about affecting change. But I mean, I I guess before that, I would like to understand 
whether this is an area in which you feel change is required, is it about changing conditions or is it about changing understanding of children's lives beyond that very narrow privileged group that you just mentioned? I think it's mostly about changing understandings of children. That's what's needed for us to become more aware of how childhood can be a very different experience depending where you were born, economic environment in which you live. So that would be the first point I would like to make. Of course, we do not want to see children exploited or, you know, children to get married at 13 because then the opportunities are curtailed. But one area where I think change is needed is education. So the education system in some parts of the world, like where I worked in Lombok, or in other areas where I work in other places of the world, is very disconnected to the realities of those children. And that's why they don't want to complete education. It has nothing to do with their lives. And it is a waste of time for many of these families, and not just a waste of time, but a waste of money. Many times, you know, they have to buy the uniform or the books, or they have to work two hours to get to school. So that's a lot of time missed for engaging in a productive activity. So I'm not saying that education is bad. On the contrary, I'm an educator. I I know what is the value of education. But education should be much more connected to those realities, both in terms of the hours they spend at school, in terms of what school is teaching to them. So, yeah, do you have any suggestions as to what that might look like? What sort of things could they be learning in school? Would you like them to see, would like to see them learning in school? I will make the specific point of the community I worked with in Lombok. It's an agricultural community. That's what they want to do for the rest of their lives. They want to stay there. They want to work their land. So it would be great if the children were trained more in relation to that very likely future that they're going to be engaging in. So perhaps school should be shorter hours to teach the basics of writing, you know, maths, of course, basic conventions, basic values, but a bit more content in relation to what they're going to be very likely to be doing for the rest of their lives. A bit more experiential learning, as we're calling these days, these sort of activities in university, much more experiential learning and less time spending like six or seven hours at school every day. I imagine you would not face much resistance from any child anywhere across the world with that kind of proposal. (laughs) I would not face resistance. But another point I would like to make is that children love to work in this context. They love to earn their own money. If they did not work, they could not work. They could not buy the things they like. Like you and I have children. We know how they like to consume and they like to buy whatever, clothes, a bicycle, a phone. So their parents cannot afford that. So yeah, I won't get opposition. I want to ask you about your future research avenues. But um, before we wind up talking about children, I am aware of making the assumption that it's difficult research or that it can be confronting. But I get the sense that has not been your experience with your research. I get the sense it's been quite an uplifting and positive experience that's exactly right. That's exactly right. When people tell, ask me, oh, how tough your area working with working children is so tough. I would say on the contrary, I feel so privileged to be working with these children, to talk to these kids, to see how much joy they get out of life. One easy example is many children, especially the younger children, let's say children between the ages of six and 10, they play while they work. So they learn by 
playing as well. So one activity children used to do during the rainy season when there was no cultivation, that they couldn't work in, in the rice or in the tobacco uh, plantations, they would gather sand from the nearby river, which they would pile and then sell for construction, which is a very tough job, really. I was a bit sympathetic to that job because they spend hours in the river. At the same time, I was noting how much fun they have while they do that. They tease each other, they splash each other, they swim at the same time. So they are still children. So they still, they have that play attitude while they work. I know that you're interested in research that can directly inform positive social change. What are you working on at the moment? Are you still focusing on children or is your research taking you in different directions? Children is my main interest, but I'm also an educator. I am a lecturer here at the university and I'm very interested in this concept of the sustainable development goals. I'm interested in this concept because it's like a a message that anyone can understand in whatever part of the world you are or whatever level of education you have. This is like a message that can be very powerful to make change happen. So I'm working on a project in relation to this to embed the sustainable development goals in the curriculum, and I'm very passionate about that. But I have also been involved in a very interesting project which has looked at the impact of climate change on child labor and how the fact that our environment is becoming so much more challenging means that more children have to work to sustain themselves and sustain their families. So that's another research project I've been involved in recently. And then with the Southeast Asia Centre here, I've been involved in a project looking at oral health in East Timor, which I've been fascinated in relation to that project. And hopefully that is going to be interesting for me in the future in terms of including children into that research. Fantastic. Well, we'd love to hear more about the oral health project in Timor. So we'll have to get you and some of the project team back. But thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak with us on the CX Stories podcast about children's rights and well-being in Indonesia and in Southeast Asia. It's been really great to have you. It's been a pleasure to be here, Natalie. Thank you very much. You've been listening to CX Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.